Welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 35. If you're in the Bay Area, we want to remind you that NASA will be at the Silicon Valley Comic Con in San Jose this weekend. Keep an eye out for several NASA booths and panel discussions, including many of the guests that have appeared on the podcast. I'll also be walking around on the floor, so don't hesitate to say hello. Today's guest is Brian Glass, a NASA researcher and principal investigator of the Atacama Rover Astrobiology Drilling Studies, ARADS, project. We talk about how his work at NASA has bridged between doing science and engineering. We also went into detail on his work conducting research in the Atacama Desert as a precursor in practice for future science missions to Mars. So here is Brian Glass. We always like to start it off with learning about Brian. How did you join NASA? How did you get to Silicon Valley? Tell us about you. Okay, a little bit about myself to start with. I got to Silicon Valley actually following in my spouse's footsteps okay. because she wanted to go to Stanford Law School. She had helped put me through graduate school to get my PhD. I was in robotics at Georgia Tech. Came from MIT to Georgia Tech. I'm Atlanta native originally. So came home for a bit. Uh, finished graduate school, was looking for someplace in aerospace. I was into large space structures at that point and robotics and uh, came here to work on a space station freedom. Well, it wasn't freedom then. It was just space station okay. refrigerator, big cooling and heating loop and uh, came to the automation and robotics division in its nascent form at that point. Then went back to graduate school at Stanford in geophysics. I'd always had an interest in geology and geophysics and the ways the Earth morphs over time as a system, oh, the Earth as a broad system, and then how the patterns that we observe in how Earth changes, how those map onto other bodies, or can we find bigger picture morphological and um, dynamic motions and changes and evolution in landforms that happen in other places that uh, we can learn from here. And so if I take the two interests yeah. on the robotics and automation uh, side and the geophysics side and put them together, and it's like, well, where can I find something that overlaps with those two? <laughs> and so I wound up in uh, a research group leader in that same automations and robotics division, where I've been since 1987, in the same organization right, at NASA right. Ames, other than a year and a half I spent in the space station office at headquarters. Growing up, were you always like into NASA, wanting to do NASA stuff, or did it just kind of happen to work out of you know what you were studying? It just, oh no, I was I, I was I was totally a child of Apollo, so to <laughs> okay. speak. Nineteen sixties, uh, black and white CRTs in the classroom, showing a launch of Gemini yeah. or something in first grade, and had models and posters hanging from the ceiling when I was a kid and the whole works and always wanted to work here and always looked to that and did the usual PhD in your 30s. If you're thinking about being <laughs> in the astronaut core thing, I got my scuba certification, my pilot's license, my ham radio, and got as far as a, you know having your medical background and references checked, maybe the round of 600 a couple times, but that was it. You know, They weren't really looking for surface field geology or geophysics people back Back in the 90s, or it was really going to be more space station focused, not planetary surface focused. So well, I was before my time, maybe in that sense. Well, it's like people tend to think of like, you know, think of NASA and astronauts. But at the end of the day, it's like they got to get there somehow. Somebody's got to build those systems. And even mm -hmm. when they land on the moon or on Mars, it's like, what are you going to do there? 
Right. You know, what are the what's science? Are the, what's know? the field science? I guess my deployable autonomy technology group is about things uh, that automate instruments that get science and things that gather samples that mm-hmm. uh, you put into the instruments and hopefully find out something about what you're studying. We have another group in the same division that does rovers and does okay. um, yeah. sort of. We use we. I sort of tease Terry Fong, my colleague over there, who yes. leads that group. That his someone group, we've had on the podcast. One you've had on the podcast before. His group does the X and Y axes, and I do the Z, so to speak. You know, he goes <laughs> laterally on the surface and navigates, and I'm about going down into it once you get there, and what do you feed with it? You know, you'd said that you'd been in the same office for for a number of years. How has the evolution of that? been over time. It's like what you were working on, you know, in the 80s, 90s versus what you're doing now. How has that changed? Well, I started off working on Space Station, like I said, right out of a fresh PhD working on uh, AI and robotics and automating a big space station system in the late 80s. We had one of the first automated AI systems that actually controlled a prototype test bed. We went to chambers at Johnson Space Center. I would live there alternating weeks for about a year and a half and uh, full-scale test with that. And it was successful, and that actually sold the mission ops people at JSC back in that era that, yes, you could actually automate these things. You didn't have to control everything minutely from the ground. And so that was actually a little bit of an advance, a little bit of a a psychological shift in how they viewed mission ops back in the late 80s, early 90s. Now we would take that for granted, but it was not a settled thing. You were still coming out of the era of strip charts and watching everything and controlling from the ground. So that was an interesting thing. Then I went on to work on SETI for taking the same principles and automating things. Uh, There was resistance there, even in the radio telescope and the radio astronomy community. Why do we need diagnostics? Why do we need automation? Why do we need anything to watch our equipment? And uh, until they had a fire at Arecibo (laughs) in our trailer, just before they were supposed to turn on the SETI targeted search at Columbus Day, Big Hoopla in 92 for Columbus's yeah. But software detected the problem, temperatures, sounded alarm, an operator came over, said, oh my goodness, <laughs> called for fire, put it out, didn't burn up our rack of equipment, minor repairs, SETI and veiling went off in 92, so that it was successful, so that when Congress pulled the NASA plug on it a year or two later, they were able to go private and have continued on the search since with private funding. So. Sometimes I will tell people that, yeah, we sort of saved SETI with automation. And, and it seems like for you, working on you know, intelligent systems on AI stuff, but then Mm -hmm. also working on like the geophysics part. It's like you see the engineering versus science and like you you kind of able to kind of combine those both. It's like, you know, what's your hypothesis? What are you trying to discover versus what are the tools you actually need to put that together? Mm -hmm. It's like two sides that. I like to write papers in both with in both areas. I like to nice. have one foot in the science and one foot in the engineering side. And I live in that seamy realm between the two communities and how they both view one another. And I get to go back and forth and put on different hats a lot. And that's I actually enjoy that. Yeah, and I actually, bet. I can I can look for what question are we answering with this? You know, what's our meal? You know, the engineering is a means to an end to figure out this question we want to answer from a science hat. Or I can look at, hey, we've got this neat thing. This will enable us to address these, this, and this, and this questions yeah. from the engineering side and find a way to try to marry these two together and put point people at each other saying, well, if you only talk to so-and-so, they have a way to do this. Or, you know, I think they might be interested in answering the, asking these kinds of questions if they knew you could actually help them answer it. So it's that back and forth rhythm. 
there was a little bit of an intermediary point where I worked in air traffic control leading up to oh, 96 cool. Olympics because I just got a pilot's license, had just come <laughs> back from NASA headquarters. And my division chief said, we need someone to work on automating air traffic management. And the aeronautics people are completely full. They can't take on any new work. And they've asked us to help out. So in a couple of years, we put together a system for routing traffic at, oh, on wow. the surface and getting things more efficiently, saving a couple minutes per taxi operation, something called the Surface Movement Advisor, pulling Ethernet cables up the Atlanta Hartsfield control tower over Christmas, New Year's break. We had to wire it ourselves. <laughs> no, until <laughs> nice. three years ago, you know, this is 2017. And now, yeah. until 2013 or 2014, I still had property inventory on my NASA account that was routers and um, network was, equipment at nice. Hartsfield Airport still. I had to go and check on periodically. <laughs> we were running their base backbone for them. Okay, so in the, talking about like that, the science versus the engineering and combining those, I know you've also done some work over in the Atacama Desert um, and some kind of like analogs of what it would be like for astronauts, mm -hmm. you know, on the surface of Mars. After all that background yeah. stuff, really from marrying geology and science and the engineering side, yeah. if you want to send something, an instrument or a drill, I've done a lot of drills, yeah. if you want to test that, you need to put it in a relevant environment. That means putting it sometimes in a vacuum chamber and maybe shaking it, doing thermal vacuum tests. But it also means if you're going to actually get sample and actually test an instrument, no one will believe you unless you can actually go to some relevant environment on Earth as well as your chamber test. In terms of um, testing an instrument, it's too easy, even only if subconsciously, for a human being or a group of human beings to design a test that they can pass. Yeah. Well, let's make up our constituents of this tracer, this mic this type of spore, we'll layer it this way. But because they already know that's something their instrument can find, or they know that their drill yeah. can penetrate this. It's supposed you have to kind of build in some sort of practicality or really like protection for the for the un the unknown unknowns. <laughs> unknown unknowns. Mother yes. nature is suitably perverse. <laughs> yes. That's nice. what we need. We need not to be able to uh, to badly paraphrase Kennedy, not to do the things which we can predict or that are easy in our own chamber tests, but to do the things that are hard or yeah. perverse or that will surprise us. We want to be surprised. Much as I hate being surprised out in the middle of nowhere in a tent with yeah. howling winds, and then suddenly we have a problem with our software or hardware and whatever test we're running and my crew is saying oh my goodness we didn't expect this yeah much as i as it may be concerning in the moment that's a win the fact that we hit something that we didn't know we were going to encounter or didn't know how to handle while we're testing it somewhere on earth exactly that means we're finding it then and we're not finding it after we've launched it somewhere that's a big win for us. That means we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be taking pieces of prototype space hardware, whether yeah. that be a drill or an instrument control, take it to a difficult location and creatively try to break it. <laughs> and so if you can take that to like Antarctica or to the Atacama Desert in Chile or, or Chile. Something. Yeah, the, the, you know. the test sites that we've used that my group uses the most are the Atacama most recently mm -hmm. and also Houghton Crater, which is a large impact crater at about 75 north, 90 west in Arctic Canada. Because you oh, have, wow. You have uh, essentially breccia, which is very regolith-like in its chemical and mechanical properties, and you have ice lenses mm -hmm. there. So if you want to do sort of 
cold Mars analogs that involve doing something with the surface or subsurface, that's a great place to go. If you want to look at someplace where you're dealing with salt crusts and evaporites and also a very barren, very little life at the surface, very dry place, the Atacama is a great place yeah. to go. Sort of a hot terrestrial analog and a cold terrestrial analog. And uh, it's easier to go to the Atacama in that respect or to um, Houghton than it is to go to the dry valleys in Antarctica, where we've also tested, which gives us sort of a cold, dry, barren. Really, one of the other thrusts in the last 10 years has been to increasingly we've sort of followed the water and found the water. Mm -hmm. We're looking for habitability and we're finding traces or evidence of that. Next is going to be a push for biomarkers. Do we yeah, see signs of molecules life? Or molecules. Do we see extant life? Do we see dead life? Do we see amino acids? Yeah. Do we see if we see amino acids? What's their chirality? Are they things that would have come that we could associate with Earth-like life? As far as I've understood things, for the most part, like most of our rovers, things that have been on the surface of Mars for the most part, really, are just kind of scratching that surface. I know you've done a lot of work on like drills and stuff. So what kind of, what, what's the thought process going into that? Of like, is it just a matter of getting a, a deeper sample size? Is that well, kind of where well if you could argue the first, on Mars at least, uh, I mean, we had a handheld drill that could go a meter or two with Apollo, and the Russians took a drill to the moon similarly. Okay. Moon is a difficult place for its own reasons. On Mars, we had the rock abrasion tool, which just sort of scraped a millimeter or so off the top of things so we'd have a fresh surface. But you could argue that's a millimeter down. Yeah. Curiosity has a little bitty thumb-sized um, rotary percussive drill that can go to about five centimeters for sampling out crops primarily. Uh, the drill bit itself is actually derived from a Hilti drill bit that you can go and buy at Home Depot. <laughs> nice. That's been machined down. Okay. But it had a series of problems. And then there's the issue with cuttings, the powdered material coming off of the drill and how you screen it and sort it okay. so that you don't get things clogged or clogging your instruments. So they've yeah. had problems with that. And so they've tried to mitigate that as best they can and with software. And so have gotten mm -hmm. some good results out of it, but it's still sort of a fragile system and can only go about five centimeters. So it's a, it's an additional incremental step, and that's yeah. good. But if we want to really look for things that aren't irradiated at Mars surface, we need to be able to go deeper than that. There's an argument, debate within the scientific community over how deep is deep. Yeah, really. There's also sort of a um, decaying issue. If you're looking for the remnants of something that was biomarkers that are 4 billion years old, mm -hmm. then the accumulated sort of uh, radiative burden and uh, so forth that you would get would be, you know, you'd see less and less that would be recognizable near the surface and you'd have to go deeper and deeper to mm -hmm. see older and older probably. Is that kind of the future of where you see a lot of your work going? Is it just a matter of like drilling deeper, getting bigger samples? Is that kind well, of Well, like we already have working together with our industry partners. And a lot of times NASA Ames's role in this has been not just integrating the systems, but we write a lot of the automation and AI software that okay. controls because in the real world, drilling is something that humans do. It's an art form. It's done with roughnecks yeah. and engineers out in rugged environments on platforms and other places. And it's uh, you're listening to lots of different data sources and you can't really see or know what's going on yeah. a mile below the surface. You know, sometimes you still have people who literally will put their hands on near a shaft 
craft and feel the vibrations. They're doing you know, frequency domain analysis in their heads. So how do you capture those data and frequency domain and uh, pattern matching things that humans are doing? Those are all interesting AI problems that yeah. we apply to diagnosing how do drills get stuck underground and how can we recover from faults when they happen? Because if you're sending it to Europa or to Mars or to an ocean world and you're trying to drill down some distance, it's going to get stuck. It's going to encounter problems. It's going to encounter things, like I said before, <laughs> you never expected. So you have to have some ability to reason from that and you're far enough away from earth that light speed means you can't exactly. control it from mission ops <laughs> there's a huge delay right the huge delay with. it was just as i go back full circle to that uh, space station thermal control system i did as a fresh phd when that kind of left mission ops and mission control people in houston saying oh we don't have to control everything from the ground we can do a little bit of automation now we're looking at situations where we have to do things yeah. on board we don't have the you can get a drill or a sample transfer mechanism stuck in about five to ten seconds yeah five to ten <laughs> seconds you have it takes 10 minutes on average to talk to something on mars and then 10 minutes to get something back so you're if you depend on earth-based control you're stuck by the time anything yeah. happens so that's one reason to stick to little bitty outcrop and even you know, outcropping drills like you have with curiosity or something yeah. where if it gets stuck you can abandon it but that's not going to get you even a meter or two on any other body beyond the moon. You, know, you could maybe still joystick it on the moon, but you yeah. can't joystick it from Earth anywhere beyond that. You've got to, it has to be self-contained and have some intelligence and control of its own. And it seems that like moving forward, it's, it's that it's that teamwork. It's like here's some smart software, here's robotics that can do it, but in working in coordination with humans then you know by kind of tag teaming it you've tag everybody can it. do what they're really good at right let the humans do the supervisory control say this is what our goals are we want to go down another 20 centimeters in this hole and then sample and then feed this instrument that instrument and then based on that give you know give us an update in six hours the next time the deep space network path gives you a and we'll find out and figure out what to do then depending on your results and what the instruments come back with so it's that flow between humans and robots in automation and each doing what they're doing best. The humans are doing the high level pattern matching and the science and the problem solving and let the sort of virtual roughnecks and the robotics mm -hmm. nice. do their thing on the surface. So for folks listening who have, you know, we want to learn all that Brian Glass does, should I just go to nasa.gov? Probably where's the best place to go? Probably blog posts from past field deployments. There are a couple of uh, past stories up from our current Atacama robotic astrobiology we project where we were putting a two meter drill on a mobile platform oh, wow. on one of Terry Fong's uh, <laughs> uh, rovers called K-Rex 2 and then life detection instruments as a payload on the same rover and we drill, we acquire sample, we feed it. The first of those deployments with just the drill and a couple of the instruments was in February 2016. And you can find that on NASA.gov as a story. Excellent. And there will be one coming up soon about the second season where we actually have a mobilized drill and sample transfer arm and three instruments in the field, one of which actually rode on the rover part of the time. And next year we will have all the instruments on the rover fed by the sampling that we're bringing up from a meter or two below the surface in the Atacama, which... Yeah, we generally don't find much at all alive. Yeah. 
Except there occasionally there are layers from based on the past history of the area where you'll hit a biologically rich, say, two centimeters. So this is a good place to test the instruments. It's a good place to test the system. It also forces us to look at things like planetary protection and cross-contamination yeah. issues, which are going to be really important when we send something like this to look for life on Mars. So for folks who are listening, we can add those hyperlinks to those different stories. We can add those into the show notes. Mm-hmm. Also, if anybody has specific questions for Brian, we are on Twitter at NASA Ames. We use the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. We're just going to throw you out there. So if anybody has questions, we'll we'll circle back with Brian and, and get them out to you. Sure. So thanks for coming. This has been fun. All right. Thanks for the invitation. It's been fun. Mm-hmm.